0: You're listening to Business in Vancouver's Women in Business podcast series, brought to you by UBC Sauter School of Business. Over four weeks, we're highlighting four women and four exemplary stories of leadership. Every week, I explore a wide range of topics with a new guest. Throughout the series, we'll cover female leadership, how to lead in politics, the fallout from Me Too, economic reconciliation, and how successful women manage risk. I'm Haley Wooden. I hope you enjoy this episode. McLean's magazine named UBC Sauder the number 1 business school in Canada for 2018. But UBC Sauder is about more than just accolades. As a student, you'll learn how to make a difference, not only in your career, but in the broader community. That's what true leadership is all about. To learn more, visit sauderchallenge.ca. My guest today will be a familiar name and voice to many Canadians. Dr. Carol Taylor served as British Columbia's Minister of Finance from 2005 to 2008 under Premier Gordon Campbell. She's also served Vancouver as a city councillor and, prior to politics, spent two decades in journalism. Dr. Taylor has served as chair of CBC Radio Canada, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, Canada Ports Corporation, and the Vancouver Port Corporation. She's an Order of Canada recipient, She served as Chancellor of Simon Fraser University and is now Chancellor of Victoria University in the University of Toronto, her alma mater. She is currently the Deputy Chairman of the Trilateral Commission's North American Group. Dr. Carol Taylor joins me in studio. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm very pleased to be here. I want to start with your work with the Trilateral Commission. For those who don't know, of course, a non-governmental organization that offers a global platform for open dialogue. We are more connected than ever, and yet it seems perhaps more challenging than ever to have constructive, open, dialogue. Tell me a little bit about the work of the Commission and its importance in this day and age.
1: I feel quite uh, blessed at this point in my career to be involved with something that's so intellectually challenging and interesting. It was started in the 70s by Rockefeller, and at that time he was worried about different countries all arguing with one another and not really communicating. And so he designed this, and it's trilateral because it's Europe north america and asia and the idea was to bring behind the scenes influencers together a couple of times a year to talk about all the issues and problems so that we would all understand each other better sort of fill up our heads with new information and different points of view and it was done with chatham house rules which means you can't give attribution you can't speak exactly about what someone said and that freed up everyone to be pretty blunt uh, because you and I both know that if you're a politician or if you're in public and everything's going to be recorded and uh, and broadcast, then you're very careful how you word things and what you say. But in doing it this way, I've seen uh, secretaries of states from the United States speak, you know, absolutely openly about what was going on in the Middle East and what we should be watching for and what was really happening. Uh, I just finished a session Last spring in Singapore, and of course that was all about Asia issues. And I, I kind of thought going into it it'd be a lot about North Korea, but in fact it was all about China, and mm. it was about the nervousness that many countries have about China, and the fact that China holds their debt, and China's doing the Belt and Road system right through, and uh, what does that mean to their independence? So. It, opened my eyes quite a bit about China. And then we just finished this fall in Silicon Valley. And that was talking in depth with all the leaders of all the high tech firms there, talking about their worries about artificial intelligence and where it may take us. And it's great if it's in the hands of good people, and it's really dangerous if it's in the hands of bad people. Mm -hmm. And so every time I go to one of these meetings, uh, not only are you exposed to, you know, the top economists in the world, and uh, you can't be a current politician, but former politicians from around the world. And, you know, the whole idea of sharing ideas, it's one of the one of the forums that I still see people talking. (laughs) You look at our own political system or the American political system, and they're not talking to one another anymore. Mm -hmm. They've all got their little corners that they're defending, and we've lost the ability to really share information or change our minds. Does it make you more optimistic about where the world's
0: going, being privy to these blunt, as you put it, conversations and being able to engage in open dialogue? Or do you have some
1: concerns? I have a lot of concerns, and it surprises me because my one-on-one conversations are always stimulating and interesting and uh, optimistic in a way. But when they identify some really significant global issues that we're not facing, none of these countries are really facing, uh, then it then it worries me. Mm. Communication,
0: of course, is such an important skill to have. And I think as we look at the next generation of leaders, it's soft skills that are really highly in demand in the workplace. What advice do you have for would-be leaders, up-and-coming leaders who are trying to communicate in a world that, as you said, maybe isn't that open to real honest communication at this point in time? You've got to start listening.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't see politicians listening to each other. I see the briefing notes that everybody's got, and they've got them memorized, and they Get on any show and they'll give you those lines. Uh, But they're not really talking to each other and sharing. And listening. So I would say to anyone who's coming along, don't be so definitive about your positions that you're not open to change because none of us have all the right answers. I guarantee. And you only start to get to better decision making if you, and this applies to business as well as politics, if you put together a team where you respect each other's opinions, you uh, give people the freedom to say what they really believe, and You know, you listen, you change, you adjust, and then you get better decision-making. So I would start with listening.
0: Do you think voters and audiences are tolerant of leaders who maybe don't have strong opinions or are open to changing their mind?
1: Well, this is going to be a funny thing for me to say, but I think that's part of the reason why Trump got in. And I think it was because he was just saying what he thought and even if you totally disagree with it no one felt he was working from briefing notes and i do think that there's just a hunger in the community for people to really say what they believe stand up for what they believe and you know not be so um, structured but i because i've been in the press for a lot of my life i think we're to blame to a great extent because when a politician missteps and says one word that's perhaps a little bit inappropriate or not clear, we jump all over them. And so then they're afraid to speak off the cuff, so they go back to their briefing notes just to be safe. So I think that there has to be some give and take from the press's point of view to allow politicians to be human, Make mistakes sometimes, and not just nail them immediately and say, "Oh, flip-flop, you're terrible, you know so we've got to we've all got to adjust a bit if we really want to get better politicians who are willing to you know sometimes speculate in public and talk about what their worries are or where they think we might go and uh, be themselves. We're not letting politicians be themselves right now, but I think that's why Trump just went zooming in because he, he whether you liked him or not, he said what he thought. I'll talk about blunt. Blunt. <laughs> Very blunt. And I guess
0: to your point about listening to us in the press and media, we could stand to perhaps listen a little bit more closely. Of course, an important part of the job, but sometimes you can miss what's between the lines or the real story if you're just chasing a headline.
1: And that worries me with the press because that's my, um, my basic love. What I've seen happen is that we've lost the distinction between columnists and reporters. And that applies to television and print everywhere. It's always okay for commentators to have opinions and express their opinions and, you know, drive an agenda. It's not okay for reporters to have their opinions out front be driving an agenda. And uh, especially in the States, you don't see it as much in Canada, but in the States... That line is so blurred so that every reporter is out there telling you exactly what they think about Trump or what they think about this and how you should be thinking about that. And they consciously or unconsciously edit the people they interview so that they get the proper opinions reflected back. And I think that's a very dangerous thing to have lost, the distinction between commentary and reporting. Mm-hmm. Yourself, having been
0: in journalism for two decades and also in the public eye, Did you learn to listen, or is that a characteristic you would say you you always had?
1: I was always curious, and so I think that's part of listening. If you're curious, that means you want to know something about the other person, or you, um, you wonder what they're thinking, or how they got to be where they are. And so I think that curiosity, by definition, required listening. And I think my favorite part of all of the work I've done in journalism, and I'm you know, I've covered wars and revolutions and all of that, which were all life-changing in different ways. But my favorite was always interviewing people, because I really felt that I could have a sense of pulling out something maybe they hadn't discussed before. I remember interviewing an author. I did a series for CBC at one point on BC authors, and um, I won't Say who it was, but I had my—I do a lot of homework, <laughs> so I had my interview kind of all planned out where I was going. And I sensed at some point, uh, you know, sort of a depression coming out of, of him, and started to go off in that direction and pursue what his feelings were. He started to talk about how he wanted to commit suicide. He knew exactly how he was going to do it. He talked about how he was going to do it. I mean, that's when. I think you've done your job as an interviewer when you kind of let the story come out rather than go, okay, this was question number one and this is question number two. and Mm -hmm. yeah. So I I always like that part of the business the best. What do you do in a situation
0: like that? Because you're both a reporter and you're getting a great interview and you're really connecting with someone. You're also a person and you're hearing quite an emotional, depressing, deep story. What
1: runs through your mind? Uh, anxiety, fear for that person and wondering how you can be supportive and maybe help in some way. Mm-hmm. And so after we'd finished, of course, I spent quite a bit of time uh, talking about that to see where the family support was. And um, But it's, it's tough. I mean, anything that if you're doing an interview and it's emotional, it's tough. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you've had many experiences in
0: journalism that have been life-changing, and I'm curious how witnessing and covering a revolution or a war has had an impact on your life. How does that change your perspective?
1: I would say I covered the Yom Kippur War when Egypt invaded Israel, and I was with W5. And, you know, it it happened. It was so sudden. It was on a religious holiday. Everybody was caught off guard, and immediately uh, CTV sent me over there. And one of the funny stories in leaving, as I was leaving, I had a little three-year-old or two-year-old at the time, and they said, oh, here, sign this. And I said, what's this? It's an insurance policy. The, really? And the insurance policy was, you know, in case you die. And the funny thing was the beneficiary was CTV. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't my family. It wasn't my son. It wasn't anything. But if I die, CTV was covered. Mm-hmm. But anyway, got over there, and uh, you see awful things more. And it's it's for the most part it's young guys. Now there may be some women in the front lines, but it was at that time it was young guys. So the people making the decisions are sitting back, whether it's in Tel Aviv or Egypt or wherever. Um, but they're kind of safe. But it's the young ones that are out there in the front line. I remember at one point interviewing uh, eight young guys, and they were on howitzers, which are those sort of cannons that are on the ground, and they were shooting towards Israel. And I went down and I interviewed them one by one and just talked to them about what they were feeling, what they were thinking, were they afraid, Um, you know, did they feel this was the right um, war and why, and anyway, did it. And then my cameraman and I decided we would go forward from that position so that we could get a long distance shot. So we walked forward maybe about 15, 20 minutes, and we got our shots. We came back, and they were all dead. Wow. And I, I, that was shocking. Because, first of all, you realize, oh, it could be you. But also, just think of the life that they had and the stories they were telling, and they're gone. And so I would say that that, in my mind, changed everything. Because it said, oh, you better be paying attention to today, because you do not know if you've got tomorrow. And what's important, and what was important is family, friends, and it's not the day-to-day job and it's not oh I'm unhappy about this or I'm worried about that. That you know those are minor minor things in your life. It's family and friends. When it comes then
0: to making career transitions, moving, any major life decision, have you been able to hold those priorities? top of mind and really start from a place of focusing on family and friends? I use
1: it whenever things are really rough. And in politics, (laughs) often things are really rough. And I just try to go back to that moment because it was a moment of such clarity, like what's really important? Calm down, get back to there, and then deal with whatever your current situation is. So I use it all the time. (music)
0: A recent UBC Sauder study indicated women directors negotiate better deals in mergers and acquisitions. What will you achieve in business? Time to unlock your potential at UBC Sauder. The UBC MBA offers many career tracks along with scholarships just for women. To learn more and apply, visit solderchallenge.ca. Mm. How did you decide to go from your first love, journalism, as
1: you said? Politics? I, as a journalist, always was trying to do the best job I could. And sometimes you'd discover an issue and you'd say, you know, this is really, uh, this is wrong. And you'd try to, I like problem solving. So I would, as a journalist, always present some possible avenues of how this could be solved. And you put it out on air. And that's it. That's what a journalist does. Mm -hmm. It's out there, but you depend completely on a politician saying, oh, Well, maybe I could actually do something about it. So the journalist's role is identification, uh, offer solutions, but I can't do that. You know, it often takes a politician to follow through. And so that was in my mind when I made the change that I spent so much time saying, Why aren't better people running? Or why don't you run? Or you, businessman, why don't you run? And eventually you look in the mirror and you think, Oh, I guess I guess if I really believe this, I better do some public service. And so I saw it as public service and not a long-term career, but uh, some way to give back to the community.
0: Once you're inside the machine, be it municipally or provincially, how easy or how difficult is it to exact change? It's easy to be on the outside and say, well, we'll leave it to a politician. Why don't they do this, 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 this? How difficult is it? What do you have to maneuver? What do you have to do to really push policy and things you care about forward?
1: I came away from politics at the two levels, municipal and provincial, uh, being very optimistic about the ability to make a difference. And I'm sad when I see some politicians who maybe were there for 20 years and they come away bitter and disheartened. That's very sad. But I was very positive. But I think it depends on why you go in. If you go in to serve and if you go in with an agenda of some ideas that you'd like to implement, you can get things done you you just you decide how to do it. you talk to the the staff I've always found is just your best source for helping you give you ideas, and then you, as a politician can carry them forward. but I found both municipally and provincially if you had your eye on the ball and you knew what you're trying to do and you're willing to work with people and convince the team that it was the way you can get things done. the ones that um I think, complain about not getting anything done, it's often because they went in to be maybe on stage Mm -hmm. or a star or whatever, but didn't really have specific ideas of what they wanted to change or how they might go about it. And uh, then it's going to be disappointing for sure because there's so many downs. You've got to really be focused on on some positive that you want to get done. Mm -hmm. You, of course, got a sense of this being
0: in journalism, but being in the public eye for much of your life. What kind of impact does that have on you and your family and friends that are, of course, very important?
1: In some ways, um, it's difficult because you are always um, you're always on stage. I mean, I was from the time I was a teenager in high school, I was doing national television, so I was always in the public eye. And I'm not someone who complains about that because it sure had wonderful benefits for me and I've had a great career but you you do have to uh, try to find some privacy so I'm a very private person and try to make sure that the boundaries of family are are secure uh, i don't I try not to talk about myself too much and <laughs> here I am <laughs> but uh, you know i th- I think that uh, I've I've respected and honored the fact that if you're in the public eye, you have a responsibility. And you, I remember a, a, a counselor when I was in Vancouver, uh, she said one point she was, re- I guess, road rage. She was really angry about something. And she said, I can't even tell the other driver to go to wherever, right? <laughs> because someone, even more now, someone will see that and then your your career is ruined, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there's a little bit of always being on guard, I think, a bit. But the other side of it is so rich, the people that you end up meeting and working with and the people you learn from. You know, just um, that connection with community is so strong. We often see among
0: voters that millennials are the least likely to vote. And yet, speaking from my own experience, there are a lot of very opinionated, smart, savvy millennials who have things to say. Why do you think we see disengagement among the younger
1: generations? They're discouraged. Mm -hmm. They don't like what they see in politics. And I don't blame them. I don't like what I'm seeing these days in politics. Uh, When I'm, as chancellor back east in Toronto, I always, when I go, have a, a session with students just you know, maybe 12 students and no faculty, nobody around except me and the kids. And it's just to talk about what's on their mind, what are they thinking about. I always ask them about politics and I've given a couple of lectures back there. And my focus has been to try and encourage this group to think about public service, either as a politician or in the public service itself, the bureaucracy of it all. And I give them positive stories about, you know, where you can make a difference and and I say to them, you know, if you just give up, then we're going to be stuck with politics we don't like. The only possibility of making it better is if that generation, millennials, if they decide they're going to go in and shake it up and change things. And I have to tell you, this will probably upset a whole lot of folks, but I am so impressed with Jody wilson Rabel and Jane Philpott and the strength they've shown to stand up to the pressure that's there. I'll tell you pressure behind the scenes to do, and it's the same in business. You know, if your boss tells you to do something, you know, it's very hard to stand up and say, well, I'll give up my career, but I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So these two women are showing that politics can be changed. It's not easy. Uh, I think Jane Philpott, who I've just got such admiration for her, I worked with her a little bit, Uh, She is so smart, so competent, so thoughtful, and she's someone who goes in with an agenda and she fixes things. She was fixing things in health. She was fixing things in indigenous services with the water situation. And for her to stand up and say, I can't do this, this is not right, I uh, I don't have respect right now for the government and the way it's handling this, As she said, and I haven't got her quote exact, but it was something like, yes, standing up and doing this is going to cause me short-term pain, but not standing up for my values would cause me long-term pain. So if we can get more people who are willing to go into politics and not so dependent on getting elected that they're not willing to stand up for their values, if we can get more people who go in for the right reasons, we will we can change things. But the trick is to get people past their disillusionment with government, their um, unhappiness with the quality of political decision making. Got to get over that hump somehow. Got to have a couple of young role models. Remarks were made that
0: Miss Wilson Raybould couldn't handle the job, that her standing up for her values was her not being able to handle the position she had. We see these remarks lobbied at women in business as well, or why we don't see more female CEOs or more women in tech. What do you think of when you hear comments like this, regardless of
1: politics? The attempted smear campaign that happened with Jody, behind the scenes, people talking to reporters and saying she either couldn't do the job or she has her own agenda or whatever, enraged me because it is exactly the way you get someone to shut up. And so if she hadn't continued to stand up despite all of that, uh, then they would have won. But she's been standing up. But that complaint about women has been you know, one of the strategies that people use. Oh, she's difficult to work with, or oh, whatever. You rarely hear that said about a man, even though they could be extremely difficult to work with. And there's a woman who's running for president, She's running, first of all, for the Democratic nomination in the States. And uh, her name is Amy Cochumbra, I think, something like that. Anyway, she has a good track record, and she's a strong woman. And the day after she announced, people were going, oh, she's very difficult to work with. And oh, she's had a change of staff in her office. And so you see it far too frequently for it to be just an aberration. It, um, You know, it's just an outdated way of trying to diminish a woman's strength. You see it in the comments about what a woman wears, where you rarely see comments about what a man wears. Exactly. I mean it is it's just an unfortunate fact of life and it's worse worse with social media. I have a good friend, she's on air all the time, and uh, she said it's absolutely brutal the way People go after her for either how she looks or what she's wearing, and she just has to keep focusing on doing her job as a reporter. And But it's, um, it's difficult. I used to get that when I was on air, but at that point they had to write letters, right? <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> no social different. media and it wasn't so <laughs> obvious to everyone. But I used to get awful letters, and I remember the police at one point telling me just to keep them, And, you know, I just had a file because there might be a pattern there that's something that they'd have to watch out for. Uh, But it is hard for women. Did you keep them or have you gotten rid of them? I have gotten rid of them now, but I kept (laughs) them for many years.
0: (laughs) What's the secret to getting through that? Or is there no secret? What does a woman need if she's giving something a shot, running for a Democratic nomination, for
1: example, or in media? What does she do? How does she prepare? Um, Keep your chin up keep going forward. And I hope and I think uh, younger women are stronger and better at that than my generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were kind of out front and often by ourselves. You know, I was often the only woman in some position. And so you were really fighting those battles in a lonely way. But I think our young women are stronger. They, um, They have a more of a sense of what they want to do or where they're headed. And that will give them some protection when the rough stuff comes.
0: What have you used or turned to when it comes to maybe learning about something? If you're in an industry where you're the only woman or around a boardroom table where you're the only woman, what do you turn to? What helps you get through that when you don't necessarily have a predecessor to look up to or speak to?
1: I've always felt that my best jobs were when i knew half of it really well and didn't have a clue about the other half mm. because when you have to learn and you have to do your research and i'm a, uh, that's my journalism background so even in business i know how to do research right and so when you're doing that the adrenaline flows your brain is challenged you're meeting new people trying to pick their brains to see how to do something better And so I, I love it when I've got a lot to learn in a job. I think that's, uh, stimulating and fun and, um, really brings out the best of people when they're, they're trying to learn. If you feel, you know, I know how to do this in my sleep. Um, and I only am speaking for myself, but I think that there is a tendency to relax too much. And I've, I've, Moved a lot in jobs. I say to my kids, I could never hold down a job. (laughs) But the fact was, I kept getting the opportunities to do these extremely interesting things, and most of them were never on my radar. I mean, if you said, okay, you're going to go from a teenage television star to being minister of finance in a province that's not even where you grew up, like, how does that happen? Or when when I was asked to be chair of the port, well, I knew a lot about the port's relationships with the community and some of the tensions and frictions there. So I knew the governance side. I knew that part. I had never worked with the longshoremen before, the grain handlers, and I didn't know much about trade with Asia. And so the excitement of all that learning and bringing it together made the job terrific. It raises a
0: good point because I think sometimes among younger generations, maybe going through school and figuring out what they're going to do with their lives, there is sometimes pressure to feel like you need to plan it all out. You need to have a linear path. You need to know how you're going to go from A to B to Z. It sounds like your career trajectory was far from linear. Zigzag. (laughs) But it
1: served you served you well. I talk when I talk to students I try to discourage them from being so linear because they are. They'll say to me okay I've got this degree I'm going to get this post-grad degree this is the job I'm going to go into and then I'll get this promotion and they've got it all sort of narrow and straight and I think some of that comes out of a time when it was hard to get a job, right? And so if you got a job, you really wanted to hold on to it. And I keep saying my best opportunities were out of the blue and were quite risky and scary, and you've got to be willing to fail because you will. I don't know anyone who hasn't failed. And you have to be willing to take that chance to get the real gems, those lovely pieces of work or relationships that are very special. But you're absolutely right. I see that that strict line that a lot of young people are, are following. How do you assess risk
0: and ultimately take decisions that involve risk?
1: My son, who is he's a business journalist in uh, New York, but when he was little, and I had to fill out an application for some school he was applying to, and he was really little – I put down and the, the top thing that, what does he love to do? I said, make lists. (laughs) Because that's what, that's what he's done all his life. But. I know where it comes from because I make lists. And so when you're talking about risk and I'm looking at a new job, I do that. I just sit, what, what's the best thing that could happen out of this position? What are all the worst things that could happen out of this position? What are the vulnerabilities? What are, like, is anything life and death here? And if it's not, it's, then how do we weigh opportunity versus security? Uh, how do we take that chance? So I, I really, I worry it. I think it. I wake up in the middle of the night, deciding one way, and in the morning, deciding another way, and eventually land on whether I'll, I'll take that risk. But it's not easy. I don't. I don't do it lightly. <laughs> some people, I look at them, and they just they do it lightly. Well, I admire them. That's not me. Fair enough. What's
0: next for you? You're very busy You're at the Trilateral Commission. I mentioned some other roles you currently have. What's next? What are you focusing on?
1: Uh, well, I'm with the Trilateral for a few years, and so that will that will be a, a big commitment. I'm the chair for Canada right now, so it means besides all the specific meetings, our next meeting coming up is in Paris. And so we work on the agenda and who the panelists will be, and that will be, obviously, when I think about it, it's got to be Brexit, it's got to be EU, it's got to be what's going on in France. So that will be extremely exciting. So I'll do that certainly for a few years. Uh, I have... Um, Reluctantly, because I keep saying I'm not going to do boards anymore. No, I've done a couple of dozen, I'm not. But Michael O'Dane is a great friend. And I'm such an admirer of what he has done as a philanthropist for Canadian art. I love his O'Dane Art Museum in Whistler. It's just so special and precious and he asked me to go on his board, and so I've agreed. <laughs> so that will be an ongoing commitment. Um, I'm also a big fan of BCIT. I, uh, I've done work with them, and I was on the board at one point, and I am, have an honorary degree from them, so I've been in close touch for a long time. And uh, David Podmore is now going to be running their capital campaign and has asked me if I would Help. I, I'm not a fundraiser, so I can't help in that way. But um, you know, I do know the community. I have a sense of strategy, and I'm certainly a huge supporter of BCIT. So that'll be a few years as well. And I'm still Chancellor of east So I've got a few <laughs> things on the go with a lot of travel. It sounds like a lot of travel. And I think when we talked before, I said to you, I looked at my schedule between May and Christmas and I've been on the road every week and I wasn't going to do that again Mm -hmm. so you'll be happy to know that in January instead of traveling four times I only traveled three (laughs) February three baby steps (laughs) so still a lot of travel but in part that's my kids Um, my kids are in New York and LA so I whenever I can I travel to see them we've talked throughout this conversation about leadership but
0: as we leave off I want to put this final question to you What do you think it means and takes
1: to be a leader in 2019? It certainly takes strong values. You have to know yourself before you can know anything about anybody else or any other issue. Be strong and certain in terms of your core values. But then you have to. You have to be someone who knows the importance of a team. Because um, by definition, you can't be a leader if you've got no followers. And so you have to be bringing people with you, and you will be a better leader if you're picking from them their best of their attributes as well and bringing it into the system. So I would say your own core values and then the sense that you can only be there if you're a team builder. Thank you so much
0: for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this installment of our Women in Business podcast series brought to you by UBC Solder School of Business. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and tell us what you thought. You can find me and BIV on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. For all episodes in this series, visit biv.com slash WIB. More audio content is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at biv.com slash audio. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks for joining me.